Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info With more mail-in ballots than ever expected for election 2020, all eyes are on the U.S. Postal Service. This is one of those services that we need to count on. It needs to be like the clock. You just assume that it's right and it's running and you don't worry about it. But we're not there right now. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, is the USPS ready for November? Plus, celebrated chef Lisa Donovan's new memoir on the dark side of some fine southern kitchens. You know, we were taught to uh, normalize bad behavior from men in ways that (laughs) that was how we started to interpret love. And the CIA's Cold War era program to seed Russian discontent with literature. I think it's interesting to see that cultural Cold War was going on alongside the space race and maybe in the end was even more successful. The news is first. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The United States Postal Service remains Americans' favorite federal agency, according to Gallup and Pew Polls. It is one of few agencies mandated in the Constitution. And it has been hard hit by the confluence of multiple recessions, the advent of Internet, email, and instant messaging, then COVID-19, and increasingly, politics. Cost-cutting procedures implemented after the appointment of new Postmaster General Louis DeJoy on June 15th have customers complaining of delayed or degraded services, concerns echoed by the American Postal Workers Union, and by voters looking ahead to November 3rd, when more mail-in ballots will likely be used to decide elections than ever before. Here to discuss the ins and outs of the U.S. Postal Service and its new leadership is Aaron Gordon, journalist for Vice's Motherboard. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me. And also joining me, Kevin Kosar. He's vice president of research partnerships for R Street. That's a policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. And Kevin, thank you for being with us. Glad to join you. Kevin, for the long view here, the United States Postal Service is an agency that has been in dire straits for years. So this is not a new problem. Since the country's founding, the post office was housed under the executive branch. All this changed in the 70s when the post office became an independent agency that had to cover its own costs. Why did that happen and what did it mean for the agency? Well, the Postal Service in the 1960s was struggling terribly. There were terrible labor management issues going on. Congress and presidents were also deeply involved in the operations of the Postal Service. And, you know, for a commercial enterprise that has to serve tens of millions of customers, having politicians mess with its internal operations was just not going to work out very well. So the 1970 Postal Reform Act aimed to put some space between the Postal Service and the politicians. So, for example, uh, instead of relying upon annual tax dollars being appropriated by Congress, the Postal Service is self-funding. So that was the plan, make it self-supporting and make it a few steps away from the politicians. And that plan worked pretty well until about 2008. And that's when mail volume crashed. And when that happened, the Postal Service's revenue took a big hit. Okay, so at that time, Aaron, this is something that you have also reported on. How did the Postal Service manage to stay afloat over those last couple of decades since 2008? It's true that mail volume crashed 
starting, you know, with the advent of the internet and then obviously um, in recent years, but it's also seen an uh, increase in the packages that it handles. So that's been a huge source of revenue for the post office. But one of the things that's happened over the last decade is the post office hasn't covered its costs. Um, in 2006, Congress passed a law that requires the post office to prefund the health care benefits for its workers in advance, which is something that pretty much all companies and federal agencies actually don't do. Um, and this has forced the post office to kind of set aside billions of dollars a year for that purpose, billions of dollars a year it didn't have prior to, to this law. And this has forced it to go into a lot of debt. It actually hasn't even been able to make those payments in recent years because mm. it doesn't have the money to do so. Okay, so a potential boon for COVID-19 because there are so many more packages. But Kevin, what kind of concerns were there for the USPS going into COVID-19? What did the agency look like, say, in, in January of 2020? Uh, in January of 2020, the Postal Service was an agency struggling to figure out its role in the 21st century. Uh, and it was an agency burdened by debt. Revenues were rarely able to meet the annual operating costs, which are substantial when you're delivering to 50 states plus you know, Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands. COVID really hit the Postal Service hard because it drove down the Postal Service's main line of business further. The Postal Service was set up to move paper mail, and that's been its bread and butter, and that's been uh, where the money comes from. But that's gone down further uh, with the economic slowdown. But we've now had this huge influx of parcels, and parcels are not something the Postal Service uh, was set up to deal with in large volumes. Their trucks are not designed for it. Their sortation machines are not designed for it. A whole host of internal operations are not designed for handling lots of parcels, and they're struggling to do so right now. So still letter carriers, even in those early days of the pandemic, when there was fear of contamination by on top of surfaces, were out there delivering mail. And in the meantime, since then, new Postmaster General Louis DeJoy was appointed on June 15th by President Trump, the first Postmaster General in two decades who did not come from within the USPS ranks. Kevin, how do you understand his vision for the agency? Well, honestly, I don't fully understand the Postmaster General's vision because he has not done a lot of explaining how he wants to retool the agency so that it can be successful in 21st century. Clearly, he wants to get a handle on the annual rising costs, uh, in particular, the huge amount of overtime that postal workers uh, log. The way he went about it, however, has not played out very well. Uh, he issued an internal memoranda to workers explaining that they should change the way they do their workdays and uh, get out on the streets more quickly and leave mail behind the office that's not sorted. And that memo was leaked to the public and uh, outrage has since ensued. Erin, this is something that you have been reporting on. How have those implementation of new policies under DeJoy changed the USPS so far? Well, I think the most obvious change is that the mail delivery has been slowed. Uh, I think customers around the country to varying degrees are seeing packages get scanned into a distribution facility and then just kind of hang there for days, if not weeks, with no update. And the reason is, is closely related to what Kevin said about the Postmaster General basically trying to cut out nearly all use of overtime across the system. Uh, it, it certainly that sounds good on paper, you know, but it kind of ignores the, the bigger picture facing the post office, which is 
according to many of the people I've spoken to, there are just staffing shortages in a lot of cases. So, you know, with package volumes surging by some reports are as high as 60 to 80 percent in some areas in recent months. Postal workers I've talked to said they just need more time to do all that work. And that results in more overtime because over the last, uh, I'm trying to remember the time span off the top of my head, something like five years, the post office has cut somewhere around 77,000 workers, according to the Office of Inspector General at the post office. And uh, they need to have their existing staff work longer hours to deliver those packages. Now they have a postmaster general who says, no, don't work those longer hours. And the logical result is the mail's not getting delivered. We are talking about changes at the Postal Service with Aaron Gordon, who is a reporter for Vice's Motherboard, and Kevin Kosar. He's vice president of research partnerships for the policy think tank R Street. Well, there's also been some concern about DeJoy. Uh, he and his wife have millions of dollars invested in USPS competitors like UPS. This is according to the Office of Government Ethics. Apparently, some divestment of those holdings, but how have those concerns played out for the agency? Yeah, certainly that's something that postal workers are aware of. And, you know, they they kind of feel like in their own minds they're putting two and two together here and interpreting some kind of nefarious plot by the, the new postmaster general to enrich himself, potentially, or just enact policies that benefit close political allies. I haven't done any reporting that really bears that out in terms of, you know, him having these kind of motivations or conspiracies. I think at this point, it's entirely unclear what's motivating him to do this. You know, the spokespeople for the post office insist that he's doing this out of a desire to essentially save the post office, that this is about making the post office sustainable and efficient and, and run it like a business and all those other kinds of things you often hear from prominent conservative businessmen like DeJoy. And I think at this point, it's just too early to really know exactly what's driving him to do these things. Well, there certainly is a lot of emotion around helping the post office or saving it. We're seeing social media tags, you know, uh, save the USPS, buy stamps now. So, Kevin, what does it mean to have public confidence in the USPS eroded right now at this time? Um, It's troubling, especially because we're going into this election wherein the Postal Service is going to play uh, an incredibly important role. It's going to deliver more ballots than it ever has before. And for people to be nervous about that, for people to wonder if their ballots will arrive or if they turn them in, if they'll get lost by the post office, that is something we do not want. And that is something that I would like to see the Postal Service address in a more forthright way. Uh, The PMG has a megaphone. And he can explain that the Postal Service still has Uh, a very huge infrastructure. Certainly it has laid off uh, or let people retire and not replace them. And so their workforce size has gone down. Certainly COVID has taken a few thousand workers out of the postal service, but they have a massive sortation network, just these huge factory type places that can sort paper mail. They've got the mechanical capacity to sort the mail and move it along fast enough. And I think that's something that should be conveyed to the American public, because most certainly they are getting a lot of conflicting signals. Well, Kevin, we know that voting by mail has been going on in several states successfully for some time. And there have been these conversations about privatizing the post office for years now that tend to fall along ideological lines. The post office is meant to be apolitical. Is it becoming more political? 
The agency itself has obviously gotten pulled into a deep political rift. You know, it's the first time in history where we've had a president actively tweeting about the Postal Service and calling it an errand boy and things like that. Um, on the other hand, the Postal Service, despite the effort to insulate it from politics, um, it's never been fully insulated. Not least, it has four unions. And these unions are always allied with Democrats. So the Postal Service, yeah, uh, there are a lot of headlines about it and the political heat has been turned up and there's a lot of conflict around it, but it's never been fully apolitical, which is too bad because again, this is one of those services that we need to count on. It needs to be like the clock. You just assume that it's right and it's running and you don't worry about it, but we're not there right now. Which, in your mind, demographics or groups would be most affected by privatization if it were to become a private entity? I would assume rural areas, just because providing service in a rural area requires a lot of infrastructure. But I, I should say that I don't think privatization is remotely possible. Uh, if you look around the world and see the various places where privatization of the postal services has occurred, it's countries that have parliamentary forms of government. It's also countries that are not the size of a continent. To privatize the Postal Service, or, or even one of its lines of business, like parcel delivery, say, that would require an act of Congress, which means you would have to get something through a Democratic House, you would have to get 60 votes in the Senate, and you would also have to get a presidential signature. And funny enough, Donald Trump's own postal task force when it issued its report December 2018, it rejected privatization. So I don't think that is a likely uh, scenario anytime soon. Since Amazon and FedEx and UPS come up in some cases in the argument for privatization, Aaron, I want to ask you about that. Let's look at his contracts with shipping giants like Amazon. After holding off federal aid since March, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin agreed last week to give the Postal Service $10 billion in relief aid. Now, this is in, in exchange for information on USPS contracts with these shipping agencies. So what is this relationship be like between these private companies and the Postal Service? And what might the government stand to gain from this? Well, I think, I think a lot of Americans don't realize how intertwined the services often are. Uh, for example, if you order something online from another company and they send you a tracking number and it says shipping via UPS, that means that that private business contracted with UPS to handle the shipping. But along the way, the odds are pretty good that UPS at some point is going to hand that package off to, to the post office, to USPS, to most likely complete that delivery. Um, this is also something that Amazon does and something that FedEx will do on occasion as well. And on the flip side, the post office will often use FedEx for transporting express packages via air. They'll use UPS's network too. And they use a host of private contractors to uh, transfer packages and, uh, around the country. So it's tough to talk about them in total isolation. You know, you talk about like privatizing the post office, whatever that might look like. They already deal with private companies all the time. They already rely on private companies and private companies rely on them. So in terms of what these contracts might show, you know, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of speculation that Amazon gets a preferred deal from the post office. Um, but no, I think it's very unclear at this point how the math shakes out in terms of whether Amazon gets 
much preferred rates relative to everybody else or whether the post office loses money on delivering Amazon packages that's often kind of accused without a ton of evidence for it. So I think all of these things are kind of unclear. Mm-hmm. What is also unclear is what is going to happen in election 2020 in November. So, so Kevin, I want to close with you. What does it mean to have the mandate so closely tied or entangled with the fate of an election? I mean, have the stakes ever been this high? Uh, if the stakes have been this high, um, I can't think of when they have. Uh, no, I think that you know in the next few weeks, we, the public, need to see that the Postal Service is getting these operational issues under control. Uh, and again, I think it would be very valuable for the Postmaster General to get out there and to speak, to explain why the agency can be trusted to get people their ballots and to get those ballots into elections officials on time. Are there any legal implications or financial implications if the post office, say, loses a ballot or if something is not delivered on time, if it's postmarked on Election Day? Well, the Postal Service itself is a wholly governmental agency. It can be sued in its own name, but doing that is difficult. And uh, I'm not aware of a single case where they have been sued for being slow in delivering ballots or something of that ilk. I think the bigger challenges are of the logistical sorts, wherein the Postal Service is a logistics business. It has its own timetables for getting done what it wants to get done. Meanwhile, every locality has its own idiosyncratic laws and rules about when ballots go out and what's the deadline for them coming in and for, in order for them to be counted and making sure that is all synced up just because the quantity of ballots out there this year is going to be so much bigger. Getting that all synced up is really, really important. Aaron, did you have anything to add there? Well, I, I also want to highlight for listeners that delivering the ballots is just one part of a successful mail-in balloting effort. You know, the local election boards that are responsible for actually, you know, counting the votes and whatnot are, are also responsible for creating realistic timetables for ballots to go out, get filled in and mailed back before the election is over. And I think an issue in some states is that those windows are very tight. They can send out ballots very late and they have to get them back very quickly. And I think realistically, just a certain amount of due diligence, both from election boards to make sure they're accounting for the changes that the post office is undergoing, and also from voters to, you know, maybe put in that request weeks in advance as opposed to days. I think all of those things are important and could help mitigate some of the challenges that the post office is going to be facing. Well, Aaron Gordon, I want to thank you for your time. Aaron is a reporter for Vice Motherboard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Kevin Kosar, he's vice president of research partnerships for the policy think tank R Street. Thanks so much for lending your perspective today. Thank you. Coming up, renowned Southern pastry chef Lisa Donovan on her new memoir, which looks back on pain, obstacles, and joy of finding her voice in the kitchen and learning to use it in the male-dominated foodie world. That's when On Second Thought continues. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 2017, the Me Too movement was exploding across industries. In an essay for Food and Wine, Lisa Donovan went head-on at the treatment of women in the culinary world. I refuse to be afraid to say these things out loud any longer, wrote the Nashville-based pastry chef, even though it feels terrifying. That essay called Dear Women, Own Your Stories won a James Beard Award, and she fulfills that imperative to herself in a new memoir, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, which follows her life in and out of kitchens and the restaurant industry that she loved and later left. It's a fiery, impassioned, sometimes painful story of a Southern chef who cared more about food than fame. On Monday, she will be in conversation with the New York Times food writer Kim Severson for an Atlanta History Center virtual author talk. But for now, joining us from Nashville. And Lisa, welcome. Thank you for having me. So you're imperative to other women. Dear women, own your stories. Owning your story meant facing down some big family secrets, as well as revealing parts of yourself that were difficult to reveal. Your mother's Mm. side is of Mexican and Native American descent, and on your father's side, traditional Southern stoic spirit. Now, you could definitely Mm. see that in their recipes, but (laughs) her family was not talked about. So how did you discover this origin story on your mom's side? Um, I started to realize that there was a real distinct connection between how I've grappled with not knowing sort of these stories and all of the, you know, some of the some of the different kinds of pains that still live and have historically lived in my mom's side of the family, and um, sort of this real deep intimacy and uh, very very rich closeness that I had with my grandmother. And I think women walk around this planet <laughs> with um, all of our own secrets and all of our own stories that we aren't sure get to have space in the world. And so mm-hmm. I felt really strongly about reclaiming these stories so that I could then reclaim my women, which is sort of the love letter vein throughout this entire book, even when I'm talking about a kitchen, you know, because a lot of my cooking is about that servitude, that sort of trying to connect with the people in front of me. And mm. so, so yeah, so there's a couple of layers there, but really the, the vein of this story is uh, finding the, the real truth in my life so that I can have you know, I can move forward and have stronger relationships in particular with my women who, you know, my mother, my aunt, my, my grandmother who is passed, but you know, she's still, she's still there. <laughs> she's still, she's always here. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that, you know, she was a woman who had to leave school when she was what, in sixth grade or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your maternal grandfather was abusive uh, to his wife and to your mother. And, and the message to you was of shame. In fact, you write, the message was that it was better to be invisible than to not be white. Mm-hmm. So this is something obviously your mom must have carried. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's handed down to you from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, in this book and in your life and and what you're urging women to do is to speak out about these shames, these, these secrets uh, that you mentioned. How did you get to the point where you could talk about them. 
Well, I mean, it's still hard. You know, it's still hard for me to hear someone say that about my grandpa. I, you know, it's it's interesting the complexities of these these. Uh, even though I wrote it, you know, <laughs> the, the complexities of these relationships are. Um, you know, I'm not certain how cultural or time stamped they are, but I do know that they are of a specific generation of women who, you know, we were taught to uh, normalize bad behavior from men in ways that. You know, we that was how we started to interpret love was like, well, this guy is absent. This man is, you know, always offhandedly saying cruel things, uh, instilling shame, creating self-doubt, you know, all of these things that, you know, we're sort of taught like, well, but you, you have to love him. He's your uncle or he's your, you know, he's your dad in some cases. He's your brother. He's your grandfather. And so I, you know, I didn't really know when I started writing this memoir, you know, things, funny things happen and funny things unfold when you're writing memoir, (laughs) I promise you that, you know, and you don't necessarily know where the truth is going to take you. And, uh, you know, I had to be really honest um, and it, it was less of an indictment about my grandfather and more of me at least being able to acknowledge as a 42 year old woman who wants to break cycles in her life for her daughter and you know whatever other women i come in you know contact with in the world to sort of undo the the ways in which we are all sort of uh captured you know i mean basically just undoing this internalized misogyny that comes from these very, very misogynistic patriarchal family structures that, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I know are really prominent whenever you have a, you know, grandfather that was raised in, you know, racist, sexist, you know, Mississippi in the 1930s, you know, and, and he carries, he carries his own pain and his own struggles. And that's a whole nother side of this conversation that deserves compassion, but also, you know, sit with the fact that I can hold two very, very clear eyed truths of like, I grew up loving him. I grew up, um, you know, he was this patriarchal figure and, and in some ways that was good. And in some ways it wasn't. Um, and I can also hold this other truth of (laughs) the damage that that kind of thing, I think culturally has done to women. You know, he would, I know he would never hurt me, but, you know, watching him call my mom stupid and, you know, small things like that, that sort of, it's not necessarily the ingrained uh, anger and fear and shame that comes from him as much as the the expectation for me to be okay with it and, and sort of, you know, carry the burden. I, I really didn't know I was going to end up in that place. And I really actually tried to avoid it because I didn't, wasn't comfortable talking about, you know, such personal things with my family. But that's the trouble with memoir. When you get there, you, uh, you have to actually decide if you're going to write an honest memoir and be brave <laughs> or if you're going to bullshit your reader. So. <laughs> I'm speaking with the James Beard Award-winning pastry chef and author Lisa Donovan. Her new memoir is called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, and it came out earlier this week. Well, that is one of the things that comes through so clearly in this book that the food industry, notoriously male-run, plenty of accusations of biting competition, over-commercialism, exploitation, certainly, of, of many people who are in kitchen staffs, and toxicity. And overall, as you point out, an ego-driven environment. Uh, you fought to find your place in restaurants, were eventually accepted by it, and then you rejected the industry, the kitchens, and walked away. Why did you walk away? 
Oh, you know, I think I got to an impasse with my career where I realized I was making way too many exceptions for the industry itself. And um, I started to really question my leadership. I started to really question my own contributions to the deep, deep toxicity of the space and that one particular uh, restaurant in particular. And uh, I, I really, I really faced that. Uh, as rawly as I could and as deeply as I could. So, you know, once I started to see what it was doing to me, I think I was never going to get to the other side. I was going to get under, I was going to remain underneath of it. I had sort of gotten to a point in my career where I was just stretched too thin and um, I'd somehow just kept trying to work through the bad manager meetings and the bad energies in the kitchen and the bad behavior by the other chefs. And um, this one young woman that I hired quit in a really poor way, in a really unprofessional way. Um, and then the, that kind of went so sour that the other woman quit and sent me an email saying, you know, you should really think about <laughs> why people are leaving. And I took it deeply to heart and quit about two weeks later. But it was the way it was, it was such an awakening to me to have these young women who, um, could see something that I was, you know, not necessarily that I had blinders on, but I really thought I could sort of circumnavigate or, you know, subvert in some way. And I think a lot of women, especially of my age, thought that, you know, it, we could just put our head down and work through it. We can go build something better one day. And then it just became really obvious to me that that's not true, that you actually have to say, this is not the way it's supposed to work. I'm actually going to walk away and figure out how it can work better. And if that means that I have to potentially lose everything that I've tried to build for the last 10 years, then that's, you know, that's a, that's a price that you become, or I became willing to pay because there was no value in that world for me anymore. So there are so many intersections here that you're talking about intersections of gender and class and race and region mm -hmm. being a Southern chef that you straddle so many different parts in this book and in your own story. And I know this is not a book of activism, certainly, but what would, uh, if I can ask you briefly, I'm not asking you for, you know, policy prescriptions necessarily, but what would make the industry more fair and accommodating for all of these different things that you've encountered in your life as a chef? The restaurant industry is built on other people's labor that isn't just this one sort of totem chef. And, um, the real problems come when <laughs> these uh, investors who who look at an opportunity, look at a chef, try to make a million dollars happen overnight. You know, I know bakers well enough to know that if you give them a reason to stick around, they'll stick around. So you should prioritize their health care. You should prioritize their sustainable sort of lifestyle. You should give them a reason to be a healthy individual outside of your, your door. You should start them with as earnestly decent of a salary as you possibly can with the intent to continually grow. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have I would have investors who would fight me on that, fight me on that and say, we well, you know, let's talk about labor a little bit more. Your labor costs, your percentages are too high. Yet then they would put in front of me all of the, you know, PR companies that they want to hire for five thousand dollars a month or the 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 banquettes that they want to get upholstered with some incredibly expensive fabric. And they want to spend all of this money on the front end to have a fabulous space and to have, you know, something that can be shot for the interiors of whatever magazine and win, you know, 
design awards. There's a real upside down world there of prioritizing your labor force and your workers. And that's, you know, that's, we're talking about these big restaurant groups. Um, you know, I think you can see a lot of chefs uh, really working hard to keep their margins tight, keep their bottom line sincere, take care of their workers. And it is much harder. Of course, it's much harder, but that's what opening a restaurant should be for, right? Is to build community, contribute to your neighborhood and take care of your workers. Uh, and I, I worry right now about their ability to sustain this moment. There's a lot of really terrible things happening to our restaurant friends, and it's heartbreaking. And I have a lot of chef friends who are fighting for their restaurants' lives and trying to do the best they possibly can. And, uh, you know, they're the ones that are probably going to get hit the hardest. They are the ones getting hit the hardest. But I, I'm staying hopeful for them. Um that they can survive this because it's it's really a tough moment for the people who do this right right now. Lisa, I'm wondering, you seem to straddle this place between connecting with your own roots, connecting with your family traditions and the regional traditions, mm-hmm. but also an advocate of change and progress. Did that process of writing this memoir reveal anything new to you about how the South has changed or how you have changed? Hmm. Um, you know, I think I've, I think I, I've always grappled with being, uh, both of the South and in the South, uh, in some ways it's changed over my life. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, I've had the really good fortune of traveling to other places and, you know, you know, you never, uh, can recognize your home in you until you're far away, right? Like until you're in some other place, that's when you recognize home the most. And so, the most surprising thing um, that has evolved for me from the experience of writing this book is really recognizing a very distinct attachment to the South and to the people in the South. And uh, that is surprising, you know, like to be 42 years old and to realize like, I'm not actually sure I would want to live anywhere else. And the 25 year old me would have been like, you're nuts. Of course you can (laughs) keep moving, keep walking, you know, keep, you know, staying in one place for a very long time is not my really my MO. And I've been here for 20 years and I realize now I'm going to be here for the rest of my life very likely. And that you realize a lot when you write memoir, you really (laughs) you go through the whole gamut and, you know, right now what I'm realizing uh, as the book is getting launched out into the world is that this is useful and I'm glad that this is out in the world and I'm glad that these stories are written down. Um, but I'm very hyper aware of the new landscape and the new things that uh, require our attention and need to be talked about. And I think it's really important that women are getting spaces to talk about stories that never really, you know, when was the last time you read a book uh, um, where a woman gets to talk about the complexities of her abortion, you right? Like, these aren't things that our culture has necessarily um, promoted or supported or even looked for. So I'm very glad that this exists. I'm glad the opportunity exists. Um, I think now I'm very hyper aware of the things that now we should be talking about, which is bringing Black women into the conversation and putting them in front of this conversation feels really important to me right now. So that's sort of also what this, this, this lockdown, this quarantine and all of these awakenings that are happening have created a space in me that I just really want you know, to re-educate myself, you know, it's just, there's a, there's, there's so many moving parts right now to really 
catch your attention and also create a space for you to do some real heavy lifting in your community. So um, that was a long answer to your very short question, but <laughs> <laughs> Lisa Donovan, I want to thank you so much for your thoughtfulness and your time. Thank you for having me. That is Lisa Donovan, celebrated chef and James Beard award-winning essayist, and now author of a new memoir called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, which came out earlier this week. On Monday, she will be in conversation with Kim Severson of the New York Times for an Atlanta History Center virtual author talk. We'll post a link to that at gpb.org slash OSD. And we're heading into a quick break listening to a song that Lisa Donovan likes. This is Talking Heads. This must be the place. But stick around. We're going to hear from Laura Prescott, whose debut novel, The Secrets We Kept, is about the CIA's program to influence Russian thinking during the Cold War with literature. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that story and more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The 1966 film Dr. Zhivago captivated Cold War-era America. It won several Oscars, set off a faux-Siberian fashion trend, and made this song, Lara's Theme, a hit. David Lean's sumptuous film was based on Boris Pasternak's 1957 novel, which the Soviet government banned even before it was published. Laura Prescott's debut novel, The Secrets We Kept, follows a CIA plot to get the book printed and smuggled into the hands of Russian readers. She creates some sharp female typists and operatives as characters who support the international espionage. The Secrets We Kept became an instant New York Times bestseller and is now out at paperback. I spoke with Lara Prescott about the idea for the novel for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. It all started with an article her father found in the Washington Post. I asked Lara what grabbed her about the story. What grabbed me and why he thought I'd be interested in it in the first place is that it was about Dr. Zhivago and how the CIA had used it as a tool of propaganda during the Cold War. They used it as a weapon. And one, I have a connection to Dr. Zhivago because I was named Lara after the heroine of Dr. Zhivago. And so it's always been this lifelong passion for me. Also, I have this background working in Washington, D.C., working in political campaigns, and I'm fascinated um, with the way that words can be used to change the hearts and minds of people. And so the story about how the CIA thought a book could do something like that was absolutely fascinating to me. I had to research everything I could about it right then. And the CIA released about 100 documents and I went straight to the website and started downloading those those memos and reports. So you found in those documents, a lot of this stuff was typed up by these women in the pool of typists. But these were women who knew that they'd studied twice as hard as the boys to get these stellar degrees to type in the end, basically. And this is a really marked difference from the kind of roles that many many of them, or some of them, had during the war. Like what? What was that shift like during and after the war? Sure. So during the war, um, people, women and men, both fought and, and served in the OSS, which was this precursor to the CIA. 
But, you know, women like Virginia Hall, she, despite um, having lost her leg in a hunting accident when she was a little girl, she was leading French resistance fighters up to the front lines and she was smuggling people behind enemy lines and, and just fighting with the rest of them. And yet when the war ended and the CIA starts up, um, many of these women were put behind a desk or in the records department or a secretarial positions. And the same men who they served alongside became their bosses and the founders of the CIA. So there was a very big difference. And I really wanted to explore, you know, what happens to these women after serving their country in such a way and then kind of having to take a back seat. I don't think that they would probably call themselves feminists by any means, but there was a sort of networking. There was a way that they protected each other and supplied each other with information about how to deal with it. How did you see that? Yeah, they definitely wouldn't probably call themselves feminists, but at the same time, many of them knew that they could do so much more. And there was this thing called the Petticoat Panel that Alan Dulles commissioned in the 1950s to see if women were being underutilized and if they could be better utilized. And so they interviewed all these women, they interviewed all these men in the CIA. And a lot of the women said, you know, I am more qualified to, to be the, the boss of, of these men. And then the men would say, I could never work for a woman. And so there was this, this strange dynamic. And so even though they might not have, you know, had the, the mind that they were fighting for women's rights, at the same time, they, they felt bolstered when they worked as a group and could function as a louder voice together, which was what I was playing with, with the voice of the typist being the girl we. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. You set up the sense of the time, uh, the women, one of their mantras in the typing pool is, fast fingers keep secrets. And they do. They know a lot more about Cold War brinksmanship than certainly the New York Times is reporting back then. And the novel begins at a time when the U.S. is definitely down in this. The Hungarian uprising has recently happened, quashed brutally by the Soviets. The U.S. is lagging behind in the space race. So America really needs a win. And their secret mission is, is a weapon, which is actually a book. So why a book? What makes that book so powerful? It was interesting. I saw a report um, by a chief intelligence officer in the CIA and said that, said that books are one of the single most important pieces of propaganda because they have the most ability to change people's hearts and minds. And if you think about it, at the time, you, know, you spend hours and hours, maybe days, weeks reading a book putting yourself in other people's shoes and developing this connection, a, a sense of empathy for the other person, which is very powerful. It could be a life-changing force. And both the Soviets also agreed, and Stalin would also say that books were weapons, and that's why so many books were being banned and white writers being persecuted. And they didn't think this was a, a, you know, a bomb or something that could be done overnight. This was this planting of a seed. And once someone would read this book and question why it had been banned, they would then begin to question other things about their government. Mm -hmm. And the CIA had many books. Chivago was probably their most successful and famous book mission, but they also smuggled an animal farm and, and other books like that that were, were subversive content for the Soviets at the time. So this, this is also part of a fascinating scheme of the CIA's real-life cultural diplomacy program or operation. What did you learn about the strategy? I thought it's interesting to think of the long tail and, and you know, receiving different messages, softer messages of propaganda. And I thought it was fascinating how much 
the CIA elevated art as a form of propaganda, most of the time unbeknownst to the writers and the artists themselves. Not only did they use books, but they used abstract art. You know, they, they promoted artists like Jackson Pollock. They promoted jazz musicians. And just the thought that they wanted the Soviets to think, we have the best art. We are the most free. Look at these things we can do. And to them, that was almost, you know, like a knife <laughs> to the Soviet culture who upheld the, you know, letters. And they were the king of letters and, and ballet and music. And they did still wanted to reign free with that. And I think it's interesting to see that cultural Cold War was going on alongside the space race and maybe in the end was even more successful. But this is not, you know, you don't necessarily think belief in the power of great art to free the mind as a CIA value. It's not the first thing that comes to mind, certainly. Yeah, I think the CIA during the late 50s um, was a different CIA than we we know today. And these were a group of tight-knit Ivy League men. And many of these men turned out to be writers themselves. <laughs> and so they had in their hearts that this is something that's important. This is what we're going to do to change the world. Well, there are a lot of secrets swirling around here, personal secrets and state secrets. And there are two main characters in the Russia division, the glamorous, impeccably dressed Sally Forrester, who poses as a receptionist, but she's actually a swallow. Uh, and Irina Drozdova, who is not much of a typist, uh, but becomes a carrier in this story. First, what is a swallow and what is a carrier? So I was looking up different code names um, on the CIA's website right in the beginning of my research. And I saw that a swallow was what, what they would call a, you know, a honey trap, someone that's going to lure people in with their, their, you know, clever ways and, and then trap them to revealing their secrets. And so that's what a swallow was. And then for the carrier, a carrier could be anyone that is tasked with, taking a, a letter or a package from one, one location to the next. And so that's what Arena was. So these women were very different from each other. Arena was given this job because she had this talent to become invisible and unnoticed, where Sally had the job because she, everywhere she went, she was the, the most looked at person in the room. Well, so let's get to this East-West, you know, these different identities. The view of the East comes from Olva Ivanskaya, who was in real life Boris Pasternak's lover, Mm -hmm. And we meet her when she is imprisoned and, and or about to be imprisoned, making her way there and pregnant. So why was she imprisoned? She was imprisoned to pressure Boris Pasternak to stop writing his novel. Essentially, Boris was the most famous living writer in Soviet Russia at the time. And everyone knew that once this novel came out, this would be the most popular novel in the land. Everyone would want to read it. And the Soviets caught word of what he was writing and deemed it subversive, even before it was published, as he was writing. But they wanted to pressure him. And to pressure him, they, they took the person that at the time he was madly in love with, and they, they interrogated her in Lubyanka, trying to pressure her into giving up Boris, saying he's writing something subversive, sign her name against him. Um, and then when she refused, she was sentenced to five years in the gulag. And she never gave up Boris. She, she continually denied that he was doing anything wrong. And she paid for it. Yeah, the, the abject cruelty of imprisoning her to get to, to punish Pasternak instead of the writer himself. 
absolutely mortifying. And what did you find in your research about what prisoners did go through in the Siberian camps? Oh my gosh. So, I mean, it started, her torture basically starts as soon as she's taken and she's taken to these interrogation rooms in Lubyanka in Moscow before she's even taken to the labor camps. And she actually has a miscarriage due to the trauma of the constant interrogations and dragging her from one place to the next, not knowing, is she going to be killed? Is she going to be punished? Then, you know, she's taken about 500 miles away from everything she's known and love and put into a, a labor camp where she's subjected to hard labor every single day. And she has to just get by with whatever means she can do it. And one of the things she d- would do is just recite Boris's poetry in her head while she was, you know, working in the fields. Well, I wonder for you, like doing this research about Olga, who inspired the character of Lara, who you were named for. I mean, I'm not trying to get all woo-woo, but is there any way that you felt, you know, I'm fated to do this. This is this is, this is my story to write. I think I feel a very strong connection um, with, with Dr. Zhivago, and I always have. I think my mom would say I was fated to write it. I don't know if I would go that far. <laughs> but it is interesting to find some that something that, embodies all of these different passions in my life, whether it's words, writing, politics, and also Zhivago come together in one one project. And it's something that when you're writing something that takes so many years to write, you really have to be passionate and almost obsessed with it. And I think it really, I really was, and it was hard to kind of put that away once you're finished writing it. Laura Prescott there talking about her novel, The Secrets We Kept. It's now out in paperback and currently being adapted for television. I spoke with her for the Atlanta History Center's virtual author talk series. For a full schedule and Zoom links to watch them live, go to atlantahistorycenter.com. And as we say goodbye today, we leave you with Louis Armstrong's What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue? from one of his CIA-funded Jazz Ambassadors tours. Feel that golden Wished I was dead What did I do To be so black and blue On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nicewanger and Jake Troyer are engineers. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. You can keep up with what we're doing on Twitter. We're at OST Talk. And you can subscribe to our show for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. To be so black and new